gorillas is coming. Featuring Kira May and Tara Canagera. This is our final episode of our second cycle, second season. Seems like a lot of podcasts are actually saying seasons. We say cycle, but yeah, it means the same thing. It does mean the same thing, but I definitely prefer cycle. Okay. You like know? a menstrual cycle. Yeah. Like a moon cycle. Mm-hmm. That's actually really smart. On the reg. No. <laughs> Girl is there. On the reg. Yeah. I had a friend that used to say on the reg. The all reg? I, reg, like R-E-G. So all I could hear was on the reg. And I was like, what? I do it on the reg. Yeah. Hmm. I never said anything in the moment. Because hmm. it's a man. Obviously, he's not saying on the that reg. That makes it even better that it was a man. Yeah. But every time, some little synapse fired. And I'm like, reg, period, blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our last episode for now. It's our last episode of 2019. But we'll be back in good old 2020 which i feel really good about i Mm -hmm. think it's going to be a really great year yeah i feel like there's a lot of new beginnings and new opportunities and new things Mm -hmm. coming so uh it is sagittarius season and uh the last couple um last couple months i decided to pull a tarot card for the new season the new astrological sign moving in i don't know if anyone likes it or not (laughs) i like it but it's something that i like to do and so it's sagittarius season now uh which began on like november 22nd and it uh i think i want to say a few words about it before we move further into this episode Mm -hmm. and usually what i have done is I have just, you know, opened myself up and have just chosen a card at random that felt like I asked, what do we all need? And would choose a card. But this time around, I want to talk about a particular card that's just on my mind and I feel like it's sort of, without sounding too (laughs) woo-woo, calling me to speak about it. And it's one of my favorite cards in the deck and I think this is how I would like to send off 2019 and send off cycle two of girl of fair which Go is on. <laughs> yes have your attention this is key zero of the major arcana the fool fun fact i just got this tattooed on my body <laughs> this is how much the card means to me so i've been thinking about it a lot um the fool depicts a character who is not really a man or a woman sort of a sexless person um who is merrily uh walking towards a cliff and is about to leap off of it and the fool has uh, a stick with a purse attached to it and is holding a flower and has a dog beside i'm gonna say him even though just let it be known it's not a woman or a man but just for ease of speaking i'm gonna say him so he 
is just so happily heading towards uh, this cliff and the sun is behind him and all it's a beautiful card lots of yellows lots of bright hopeful colors and um, it means so many things and I'm going to be really concise about it for now but it's about having so much faith in the universe and faith in yourself that you are ready to take a plunge you're ready for a new beginning you're ready to just say yes to an opportunity that's arising you're ready to let go of all of your fear because you have so much faith in your heart and that faith will act like a hand sort of hovering under you holding you as you jump off the cliff and you just have an awareness that if you take a plunge and even if it doesn't go the way you imagined still just the knowledge that everything is happening as it should happen and good will come of what happens when you take that huge leap um so it's an emblem for new beginnings it's an emblem to me for fearlessness and the coolest thing about the fool card is when we think about the major arcana as a whole which including the fool is 22 cards they're numbered zero through 21 um it's thought that the fool symbolizes the seeker and whereas the cards one through 21 act in a sequence that it matters like which one is number one which one is number two and they go in a sequence like that number zero the fool is he represents us the seeker who can move throughout the other cards and represents the seeker's journey at the beginning at key zero the fool is like kind of like a child or an animal who is unconsciously perfect unconsciously beautiful and simple and whole kind of like a pre-fall character like an adam and eve who haven't fallen so to speak and when we see characters who are fools in literature oftentimes they are they have this like christ um archetyped i said archetyped (laughs) that's okay keep going keep going (laughs) they have this like christ archetype where they have this like um, childlike simplicity, but are very wise at the same time. And we also see the characters of the fool because they are thought to not be a threat. They're let inside of the king's court and they're, they are able to access all kinds of knowledge, like insider information because they're thought to be harmless and that kind of thing. So this sort of version of unconscious perfection that as, the fool then takes the journey through the major arcana. By the time they get to the end, the world card, they've gone through all of these archetypal situations that have made them grow and made them stronger so that by the time he gets to the world, he becomes consciously enlightened. So that's the fool's journey. And uh, the reason, this is longer than I meant it to be, but the reason why I bring it up is it's a card for new beginnings. So you would think it functions well as like a happy new year card when we come back in january but i like the idea of concluding this year and concluding our second cycle with this thought of a new beginning and jumping into something new because i feel like our third cycle is going to be phenomenal we have a lot of ideas things we want to do things we want to keep doing things we want to do differently um And we're going to do that with love in our hearts and no fear. Or if we do feel fear, we're going to jump anyway. That's what the fool teaches us. And I'm so happy that uh, this character is on my body now. Shout out to Kat Gombach, who tattoos at 
Tapestry um, Collective, formerly Outcast Collective in Toronto. They are an amazing artist, um, and they did an amazing job on this tattoo. So that's just where my head is. Yeah, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. No fear. No fear. <laughs> my brother... Uh, my brother had a t-shirt that said that, and on the back was a basketball hoop and a basketball, and it said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. No fear. talked about that on another I'll, episode. I know. <laughs> and I will talk about it. Till the end of time. Till the end of time, because I agree with everything that you said. It's time. It's actually, you know, it's always time. It's always time to take risks. And uh, if I were to add anything to that, I think it's really important for people to take risks in front of other people Mm, (laughs) you know we learned that a lot this time around yeah you want to try something and have people bear witness to it (sighs) and you need to go through the process of falling on your face succeeding or failing in front of people and i think both situations you end up growing substantially definitely when you fail i used to be pretty afraid of trying something in front of others because i was so afraid of judgment and embarrassment But then because I understand or understood rather what it felt like to kind of hit that ground, like smack my face, I learned real quick how to not do it the next time, you know? So I want that to be in everyone's ears. There's also solidarity in failing in front of other people. Yeah. Because everybody does. Mm -hmm. Everybody stumbles and when you can do it together... It just feels like you're a team. It's like community building or something. Yeah, it's totally community building. And to allow others to help you up when you fall rather than trying to, you know, slip on that ice or whatever surface you've fallen upon. There are people out there that can help you if you don't feel like you can do everything on your own. On that note, that's a good segue. Um, I, I... I I just feel very like sentimental today. And uh I Kira <laughs> in case you don't know our voices apart. <laughs> uh want to thank our listener. We took a week off last week. Um that was because I was um going through sort of a tough family time. One of my sisters had brain surgery last week and I wanted to be with my family during that time, so I had to put the podcast on hold a little bit um and i just feel that i want to thank our listeners for you know having patient not caring when we release the episodes which is sweet (laughs) and also thank you to all of my friends who showed me a lot of support while i was um sort of processing this and having a an emotional time Thank you, Tara. Thank you, all of my friends who've been there for me and like gave me a lot of hugs. And and the world is pretty sweet sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the world's more than work and podcasts and stuff. The world is love and your family and your friends and the people that give you energy and you want to give that energy back to them. Yeah. Uh, so congratulations to your sister for... That's yeah. a very successful recovery. Yeah, it was very successful. And uh, she doesn't listen to this podcast, but she's incredibly strong and mm-hmm. incredibly courageous. And watching her go through this and other things um, just reminds me how strong she is. And it's 
amazing. And we all have that strength inside of us. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Heavy start. Heavy start. Heavy start. But, boy, oh boy, do we have a good interview for you. We do. <laughs> this is, I think uh, we're both really, really, really excited about this episode. It seems like a great way to conclude a really amazing second cycle yeah uh i i don't have enough good things to say about this interview Uh, it definitely uh stuck with me afterwards i don't even want to say anything about it i had a friend ask me how did it go and i just was afraid to retell her beautiful stories because i would just tarnish them with uh my awkward words (laughs) yeah um you may be wondering, who are we talking about? Because <laughs> maybe you didn't read the title of this episode. <laughs> Today, we talk to broadcasting legends Lori Brown. Woo woo! And this was a really exciting one for us. Um, I'm a huge fan of her shows, The Signal, particularly, and Pondercast, her new podcast. Um, and it was terrific to talk to her Lori Brown for those of you who don't know has hosted the new music CBC's the journal and on the arts as well as serving as a seminal much music VJ she notably hosted the signal on CBC radio 2 and now produces and hosts pondercast a podcast that combines music with deep ruminations about the human spirit and what it means to be alive in today's world. Yeah. That's Lori. Lori uh, is has become my new goal. <laughs> She's goals. <laughs> She's a Libra goal. Because, uh, not to make this all about that, but I'm gonna. You know, she, people loved our witchcraft episode so yeah, much. Yeah, maybe we should just lean into I think this. <laughs> the tarot stuff astrology stuff like maybe that's the ticket (laughs) sorry my brother (laughs) my brother my brother's not as into that side of things that's okay but i will say that uh no fear tomorrow no No fear fear. anyways um (laughs) so uh yeah she really we've had a lot of libras like a lot of libras on this podcast and they exhibit qualities of I guess, what would you say? They're very insightful. Yeah. They seem to be quite c- captivating. Uh, also diplomatic and having yeah. the talents of seeing many sides of something. Yes. In a way that isn't just, because uh, I think Geminis are talented at that too, but in a way where it's just like, it piques their curiosity. Mm-hmm. But I think Libras do that in a way where they want to understand people. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely made her a gifted broadcaster. And uh, one day I want to be just like her. I want to be the highly evolved Libra that she clearly is. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. And there are so many beautiful stories and nuggets of wisdom and inspiration in this interview. And Mm -hmm. we really hope you enjoy it. It's sort of, I think, to us the perfect way to wrap up an awesome batch of interviews that we have 
been um, so lucky to have done this year. Yes. So here it is, our talk with the incredible Lori Brown. There are no rules yeah. at Grill It's Fair. <laughs> All right. I think we're ready to do this. Lori Brown is here with us today. Hello. 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 Both of you. <laughs> How are you? Hello to everyone. <laughs> I'm good. It's a Saturday. It's not snowing. You can move around the city really easily. I'm going to go to the St. Lawrence Market after mm. this. Yeah, life is good. I used to do that every Saturday with my mom, mm. with my mom, Lori. Mm. We would go, and she'd want to go real early, and I'd be in high school, like, I'm not getting up. That's not happening. At six o'clock, mom. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it's, it. I it's nice when the day is crisp, and you say something quite astute about being able to move around the city. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as it snows, everything is such an effort. You know, like the sidewalks are half as yeah. You know, half as wide, and yeah. you're just like trudging around. Everyone's but, bigger because they're big coats. Yeah, everything's bigger everything. and smaller at the <laughs> yeah. same time. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I wanted to ask you about Nova Scotia because you were there recently oh. mm-hmm. and uh, you grew up there and you split your time right between Toronto and Nova Scotia. Well, I, I didn't grow up there, but oh. my parents grew up there. They got married and moved to Ontario mm-hmm. and then had my sister and I. And then we would go back every summer of my childhood because my grandparents were there. And then in 1980, my parents and my younger sister moved back. But I was... 18 at the time okay and I thought there is no way I am moving to Annapolis Royal Nova Scotia at 18 (laughs) years of age living in Toronto so they left without me and I stayed um about 10 years ago a little more than that I actually bought a bought a place down there to Mm. be close to my sister and my father who's still there and my son moved there a year and a half ago so families relocating so now and even while I was on radio um, I recorded the show down there I would just like this on a laptop I would do do it down there so um, I I spend a lot of time down there yeah yeah I was curious to hear about the music scene in a sense because I find people that are from the coasts Mm. like from the west coast and Mm. east coast they have like a really unique sensibility when it comes to music they're exposed to kind of different things like pastiches of types of styles of music and maybe because uh i want to say maybe limited exposure but you did say you spent time in ontario more than nova Scotia. oh yes way yeah. more yeah way more but i think you're right about people who come from the coasts um maybe it's a sensibility particularly i think in the east coast that they're on the edge of things and they're on the outside looking in and it's a smaller community and no matter what kind of music you make, you tend to know more musicians. So musicians get exposed to different, more different kinds of music and end up working with people working in different genres of music. And I think um, it may be easier in some ways to come up with your own original style when you're living in a place far away yep. and looking in. When you're in the middle of Toronto, it might be harder because it's, you know, you're overwhelmed by every kind of music is available to you right here. Yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. Um, I grew up in Scarborough and I read 
on Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> that perhaps you are from Scarborough. Oh, yes. Midland, <laughs> Midland and uh, Ellesmere. Okay. Yep. I know yeah. where that, I was a little, I grew up in Birchcliff Heights Village. So oh, like yeah. Birchman in Danforth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> uh, okay. This is a starting point for me for so many <laughs> questions that I want to ask you <laughs> because, but I'm going to start here. When you were a young person and you started uh, becoming interested in music, because it's obvious, you know, reviewing all of your work and listening to all of the work that you do, music is a huge part of your life. Mm. And I'm wondering how that began and what was the moment or like the song or the band that you heard first and you were like, music is the thing. Wow. <laughs> uh, I grew up around music. My dad's a jazz pianist. Mm. Um, and a piano tuner. Mm. Um, my grandparents had a radio show in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. My, my grandfather played piano. My grandmother played organ. So there was always music in my house uh, growing up. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't access my dad's music on the piano because he played by ear. Mm. An unbelievable player, a la sort of Art Tatum, like unbelievable player with crushing stage fright. Um, but so he made me go for Royal Conservatory piano lessons because <laughs> that was the thing that he didn't know. Um. And okay, I can do it and I can play piano, but I have to have a piece of music in front of me written by somebody else. And I, I, I regret that I, he didn't have the foresight and I didn't have the, the, I don't know, the attention to say, Dad, show me how you do this. Show me how you piece together these mm. chords. Show me all that stuff. Didn't do it. So was there a moment when I found my own music? Yeah, there is a first radio in my hand that I got for walking on a walkathon. They were handing out these little transistor radios and I get home and I can tune in all this music that I've never heard before in my house, right? And I realized there was a whole world out there and everything I was hearing in this music, everything the lyrics were about, were things that my parents were not talking to me about. <laughs> you know, whether it be love or heartbreak or, um, I don't know, girls or boys or whatever. So it really was the magic of the radio that, that I, w I was so inspired by this curious world. And then as soon as I was able to go on the subway by myself from Scarborough, Every Saturday, I would go downtown to the record stores. And that's what I would do every Saturday. And I would have a little bit of money, um, and I would buy one thing. And I did it all through looking at record covers. And that was what I decided I was going to buy from the record cover. Um, so that became my practice all during my high school years, is every Saturday, heading to the record stores. Where would you go? I went to, well, I went to Sam's, I went to A&A, &A, um, everywhere along Young Street. You this know? is so much like my life because yeah. <laughs> growing up in Scarborough, uh, 
Okay, I could see the CN Tower from my bedroom window, but it was like this big. It was oh, so small. Wow. And for me, that was a symbol of like this world that I wanted to be a part of yes. growing up in the suburbs because I knew from age like 11, I was so into music and I was into a lot of Canadian alternative rock bands and some of them lived in Toronto and I was just like, <laughs> that's where life is. Yes, that's it's where life there. is. And I'd see it and I'd be like, why? I, and it seems so far. <laughs> and then every, my dad was really into music and every Saturday he would drive me to Sam the Record Man on Young Street and he'd let me buy one thing if it was wow. like a CD. Not yeah. every week he would buy me something, but a lot. like Or like a magazine or yeah. whatever. And I cherish those memories so much. I still have mm. a Sam the Record Man shirt. Wow. And when it was torn down, I was like destroyed inside because it's like my place with my dad. And it meant so much to me. And it meant so much to the blossoming music lover and musician in me. Yeah. So I just, everything you were saying, I was like, I know this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I wish I, I had a very different entry into music because it was so studied. Like yes. the thing that you, you brought up is something that's come up on previous podcasts about being a learned v- musician mm. versus someone who just learns by ear and yeah. just finds their way. And I feel like the grass is always greener. You talk to people that have studied a lot and they're like, I wish I had more of an instinct. I wish I could feel around and find something that feels unique and special without it being through the lens of this language that I was taught, this very specific language, you know, and, uh, and it's interesting that you had kind of both sides that your father wanted to be more learned, but he had this natural gift and that you were searching for this, something that seemed more organic and you were given all these tools and maybe you didn't, as you said, maybe get you to that place, that kind of raw place. Yeah. And I mean, musicians move from the learned academic side of music to the freer Mm -hmm. improvisational all the time. But I think for some of us, making that break is harder. It, because you are breaking a pattern that usually is like at least a decade's worth of lessons that you've been taught that this is how you do music. So to to break that down is really hard. And I could never, I could never do it. Mm-hmm. I tried, and I and I, I didn't try hard enough. Um, <laughs> so because it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, that's a common thing. I think people, they, their identity is so tied to those years of work. Like I, I bump into a lot of musicians that have studied for many years and they decide to do something else. They're like, oh, I want, I want to be a nurse yeah. <laughs> or I want to do something else. It's sometimes like vastly different from music. Yeah. And there's this sense of like, oh, but I could have, you know, like this, I was this person for 10 years yeah. and now I'm this person. And there's a kind of a sense of loss. Um, but also, like, as someone who's still doing it, I'm like, but that's great that you found something that actually gives you more meaning. It's okay exactly. that you let go of these 10 yeah. years of work or more. Yeah. You know? It's letting go of the tradition and the culture of learned music, too, right? That's the hard part. That's yeah. really hard because mm-hmm. it all comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah. Mm. Quite astute. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so interesting. For me, it's the opposite. I have, like, zero training and... I like to think I have some natural gifts. You have so much. <laughs> oh my God. I have at least a love and a desire. Um, but when I try to sit down and I feel stunted because I don't have the vocabulary, like the technical vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that makes me feel like an imposter. Like, oh, 
I'm not a real musician because I don't know how to write a chart for my band, <laughs> like, things like that. And, and I've tried to learn, but it, like, it's the opposite. It's so hard for me to learn that technical language because I feel music in a much more abstract way, like in my body. And but you find ways around it. Yeah. I remember, um, how did I know this? Oh, he told me. Uh, Gord, Gord Downey, in his house in Toronto, he had a piano, and he had no way of communicating to the guys in the band who were in Kingston what the song, or, you know, what the chords were or anything like that. He had a little video camera set up on a tripod over his shoulder looking down at the keys, and he would play and sing or just play and record it and just send a picture to the guys mm. and they had to figure it out which shocked me that um i thought he would have a much more sophisticated style of being able to communicate about music and you could say that that's probably the most sophisticated style is the c- camera right behind him mm. but i found that so amazing like you you find your ways. You find you find different ways to communicate, and it obviously worked. Yeah, that's mm. true. That's wonderful. That's very inspiring. Mm. Um, I like that. Actually, I'm I'm recording a record right now, and my I was saying to my drummer Eric West, mm-hmm. wherever you are, hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you're on tour right now. Anyways, <laughs> um, and I was saying like you know sometimes I feel. Um, like, I don't know how to get my ideas across mm. to the the band. Well, I do, but I just feel weird about the way I do it because I do it in an unconventional way. And he's like, yeah, but you're the one who's the expert in your music. Mm-hmm. So that's the most important job of all. And I was like, oh, Eric, yeah. <laughs> it's great. It gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. But anyway, that is hard learning how to communicate what you want yeah. from other t- from other musicians, right? Yeah. Yeah. But back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you're a musician as well. So we hear. Well, kind of. I don't, I don't, I really don't think of myself as a musician, but I think of myself uh, as kind of a shadow artist in some ways. Um, Adding something different to the music, Mm. I guess. We know about your band. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, can you tell us? <laughs> this is such a funny question. Can you tell us about your band? <laughs> oh. Well, it was something that grew out of working at City TV um, in the early days. I was a film editor and acting, and I was film editing at night in between jobs, and the band came together, and we decided to do... Uh, all cover versions, but we were not going to do them in any one particular style. Every song that we chose would come from a different style of music, and then we would reinterpret it in a different style of music. The band was called The Crowd in History, and we did everything from songs from musicals to punk rock songs to pop songs to, uh, I guess that's about it, but, um, you know, everything from you know, bad reggae versions to um, everything. And it kind of became known around town as kind of a musician's musician's band. You know, it's like people would come and they'd get a laugh out of what we were doing. 
and it was a kind of a musical commentary band. It was fun. Mm-hmm. It did sound fun. It sounds like you, from an early age, were interested in like film and TV, yeah. editing and acting. Was I think that- that's where I thought that I was when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an actor. And then uh, I was doing some theater work and uh, musicals and, you know, cabaret and that kind of thing. And then I realized that in um, the theater and film and TV world, so much of your life is about rejection. And I thought, I don't want to build a whole career based on rejection because that becomes what you have to deal with. The fact that someone else is telling you, you can't do this. Mm. And I thought, I maybe it's my personality type. I am not an A personality type, but the thought of trying to process all that rejection all the time I knew was not healthy for me. So I decided I got to find a different way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always think acting is one of the most difficult. Like some people say it's very, some people can kind of fall into acting, and mm. uh, but there's like this whole system around acting that can be very challenging about like fitting a like even just the way you look and how you're supposed to present yourself and how that's so intertwined into like having to manipulate yourself in order to suit a certain role there's a certain beauty to that but then there's a certain darkness to that as well Mm -hmm. and to be told I I was I was, (laughs) was talking to a friend who was an actor and um they said oh they didn't like me because my nose was too big and they said, so matter of factly, like, oh, it's a fact of life that I'm not good enough for this role because my nose is, is so uh, objectionable oh that uh, I cannot be on screen. But they said, and the way she talked about it, uh, it was with no passion. She truly accepted that this was okay. Wow. Um, and when I heard it, I was like, oh, didn't, like, doesn't that bring up feelings for you? Like, are you going to take this nose thing to the next audition? Are you yeah. going to be aware of this? Like, are you, are you thinking of plastic surgery? Does it bother yeah. you? Da, 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 da. But she was very at peace with it. Uh, and then I'm like, well, that's an actor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like she loves it because, uh, if she I, can incorporate that into that's Yeah. yeah that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's incredible. But then you kind of parlayed acting to, being on camera in a different way. It's so weird how life does that. You think that there's no way that you're going to end up doing something in your life that is about what you love to do, like the talents that you've got from different areas, right? And yet it does. So I would take that acting experience, that, uh, that desire to communicate something through a camera lens, and I could use it in different ways. So... It's amazing to me how that works. It's mostly luck, I would think, um, and a, and some hard work, um, but mostly luck and recognizing opportunity, I think, are the two most important things that you should count on and try to try to cultivate is recognizing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was that our term? Uh, luck favors the prepared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's something to that. Like if you approach life with an openness, if you approach life willing to say yes, I think you see more opportunity. Mm. Like they come to you because Mm -hmm. they're attracted to that openness. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you got your uh, music broadcasting start at the New Music, mm-hmm. um, which was the first show of its kind, really, as like a video music magazine, I think they yeah. say. Um, and how did you fall into that role? Um, and and what was that like for you? <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was luck being in the right place at the right time. Uh, they needed a new host, and at that moment, I there was a video that was out by Corey Hart called "Sunglasses at Night," and I was in the video, and the people at the New Music said, "Well, what about Lori working down in film? Like she does, like she's in a band." She does TV acting. Um, she's in. She's connected to mute. You know, she's connect. Why don't you ask her? So Daniel Richler asked me to interview him as an audition, and it and it worked. So that happened, and it was trial by fire. Right? I didn't know anything about um, actually putting together a story. I had no journalism training. I had nothing. So, um, but that's one of those moments where recognizing an opportunity makes sense because I just could follow my passion, which was curiosity about music and, and a love of music. And so that was the thing that got me through every, like actually everything in my career is still a curiosity and a passion about music. So that gets you through the day when you're trying to figure out how does a story work? Like how do, what do people need to know first? What do they need to know second? What, you know, How do you set it up for them? It just trial by fire. Yeah, because you've interviewed some pretty large personalities. Mm -hmm. And to navigate that space must be pretty tricky because artists are such unique creatures. Like Mm -hmm. you'll bump into an artist who is so pleasant and lovely and easy to be around. Mm -hmm. And then you'll bump into someone um, who's prickly, uh, protective, Uh, and that's, that doesn't actually mean one is better than the other, actually, because it could mean a really amazing, interesting, intriguing interview from this person who shows you their warts or shows you a side that may mm-hmm. not be as palatable. Mm-hmm. So how do you navigate that space? Like, how do you stay um, composed when you have to deal with all different artist types? Uh, I have compassion for them sitting across from me because many of them may not want to be there. Many of them could have a bad day. Many of them have been burned many times by sitting down in front of an interviewer who is not prepared and who doesn't give a shit about what they do. So I think the thing that has helped me in my interviewing career the most and has probably most been most difficult in my life is the fact that I am an empath Me too. and that I can feel what what's going on with the person in front of me. And so I have, my job is to make them feel comfortable and let them talk about what is most important and passionate for them. And it's my job to find that in an interview and so that they feel like I am on their side and um, I am letting them be who the best, the best things that they can be. Sometimes they're just too prickly and tired for it to happen and it doesn't happen. But um, I think that's the thing is, 
is my biggest curiosity is trying to understand what makes them tick. It's not the answers to my questions that are important. Mm-hmm. It's what what's going on with them and what makes them passionate. Because as soon as you find what makes some someone passionate, then they can talk freely. Because it's almost like it's not about themselves anymore. Mm. I think you're right. Artists, in my experience, love talking about art. That's yes. all. That's what they think about. Yeah. So they want to talk about like the ideas and the, the craft and the love that they have for that. And um, I want to follow this empath thread yes. <laughs> for a moment, if you're okay with that. Yeah. Um, I love how you just so freely proclaimed that. That's amazing. Um, for listeners who maybe don't know what empath means, it means that um, an empath would be a very sensitive person who is not only a highly sensitive person, but actually feels the emotions or sometimes like physical um, conditions of another person in their own bodies. So if someone around you is anxious, it's likely that you'll take it on and feel anxious too, et cetera, et cetera. Read all about it. Lots of empaths in the world today, but the term is relatively new. So that's mm-hmm. really interesting. But um, That was you... well explained, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of reading about it yeah. because I heard that term and like a couple years ago and discovered like it explained my whole life. Mm -hmm. It explained so much about my super high sensitivity and how I've had so much anxiety during like throughout my life that could be explained by having like no barrier between myself and other people. No boundaries. I'm learning a lot about boundaries Mm -hmm. now, but um, have you always been highly sensitive and what was that like for you? I guess. You seem um, very, like you've honed it. <laughs> well, I've, yeah, I think I've developed practices to kind of help it. It, it. it turns out that it was a coping sort of survival mechanism growing up because I, I had a mother who was not, who was, was felt very dangerous. <clears throat> so I developed these hyper spidey senses about what was going on with her now it's a coping mechanism that probably is not really great for being out in the world but here's a funny thing about life it is exactly that skill that made me a great interviewer Mm -hmm. so it's so amazing how you can take have something in your life that actually is quite difficult to work with and to live with and yet focused in the right way you you have exceptional powers mm-hmm. and and so that i think has that has been a big part of my career and if i've had any success at all is being able to channel that in a different way so that's beautiful that impacts me a lot <laughs> cuz i think in my own artwork i know that I have an ability to hold space for people Mm. and maybe create a space for them and a lot to give. And I think it's a gift, but it's also, I think a lot of empaths feel that it takes a while to turn it into a power. And for a while it's like, it almost feels like a curse, that level of sensitivity, just feeling all of that stuff all the time, especially Mm. in a society that's so saturated anyway but it's so good in a musician because and I had this conversation on 
on my podcast with Donovan Woods about how his music feels like he is just including you, like he is embracing you and that idea of holding space for you. He brings you into the music like he's he's left space for you. Mm-hmm. And that's all, you know, you can tell it was somehow an intention. How does he do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I feel that that's it. The artists I love, a lot of them have that ability to include me in their songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, to reach past the barrier. Because yeah. it seems there are so many different types of artists when it comes to like how they communicate. And some artists have like a real air of mystery. And you never really know how or why or what they are and but you feel something from them you're like oh there's some energy i'm getting i don't know whether it's happy sad mm-hmm. glad or mad mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know what it is yeah. but there's something there um and then there's musicians that um are freely reaching across that aisle and being like this is exactly who i am mm-hmm. you know and uh i want to show you and i want you to understand you mm-hmm. know and uh I, I like all types of artists, but I think in when I was um, growing up, I think I really idealized the mysterious artists. Like, oh, who I don't, I know nothing about them, but there's something there. Well, that's another style, right? Because yeah. that has you reaching in, yeah. and very curious. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the style that he, they include you and reach out and get you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I and I don't, and I guess it's like individual to who the artist is, and it's it's just a magical experience. When again, when you kind of dig deep and you're like, there it is. I think this is who you are, even if you're wrong. It's right. like your own perception of who you think this person is. Right. Um, but lately, I I I I um, feel myself being drawn like exactly what you said about donovan woods being drawn to people that just say who they are Mm -hmm. and are willing to share those things Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um i am curious about because you have such a long list of amazing people that you've interviewed uh and i would be remiss uh, to not mention miles davis we asked her off mic if we could talk about him (laughs) Uh, for all our jazz fans. For all our jazz fans, because we have many, uh, <laughs> many. <laughs> we have so many friends. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he's someone who's incredibly mysterious mm. and has evolved, and he's, like, he, I think he's this, what, I was about to say, what, I wonder what his astrological sign is. But he has his way of, uh, <laughs> like, being reborn. Like, he's had so many different phases in his it's life. In his Scorpio. Life. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> um but I'm curious what it was like to talk to him, I guess, near the end of his mm-hmm. life. Um, that must have been an incredibly interesting interview. <laughs> well, I, I was doing a, a one-hour special on uh, for the new music called Musicians as Artists. And Miles Davis was an artist. And... He did not do interviews. He did not do interviews at this point in his career, and very few interviews ever, um, about music. He wouldn't talk about music. But I thought maybe he would talk about art. And so he didn't have a manager. He just had a lawyer that (laughs) um, worked with him. So I wrote this guy, and I talked to him and I just said just please just put it to him he would be included with Joni Mitchell and you know there were some other uh Ron Woods from the Rolling Stones Ron and and so 
he put it to him and remarkably miles said yes so <sighs> then i freaked because <laughs> i thought i am not a jazz aficionado i know jazz i love jazz but there are a million people in the world who know miles davis work inside and out and even his artwork or whatever that deserve to be in this chair instead of me so I contacted a guy, and I'm sorry I've forgotten his name, but it was a Canadian who wrote a book or two about Miles Davis and told him I was going to do a television interview with Miles Davis, and he was so pissed off. <laughs> he was, like, incredulous, and uh, and I said I could, I could use some help here. Um, but I'm not going to talk about music. I'm going to talk about art. And he didn't have much to offer me in that situation, but he couldn't believe I was getting this interview. I found a, a jazz film collector in Toronto who had a lot of film on Miles Davis that we were able to procure for the piece. But anyways, I was going to New York, to Central Park, to go to his apartment and interview him. And so the cameramen were fighting uh, over who got to go. And there's a most wonderful guy that I worked with, Basil Young, who was um, the brother of Master T from Much Music, oh, if you could remember of that. Course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anyways, of course. Yeah. Anyways, as far as I was concerned, the black cameraman gets the job. <laughs> there was, you know, if, as far as he was concerned, this was a god and a mentor and a hero and everything else. He's coming. So we went. We went to Central Park. We get up to his apartment. It's right overlooking the park, this um, place. And you take your shoes off on the outside and you go into the apartment and it feels very zen. Um, and Miles is in the kitchen eating fish with a young woman who, I, well, youngish, who I don't really know what her, uh, what her role was in that place. His place was pretty much all white and he was eating fish and he had Prince on his stereo. He was playing Prince. And so we meet, and he's looking super cool and super old. And then he says to me, this guy, Prince, he writes me a letter. And he says, man, you and I, you and I should hang someday. I could make you cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's quite the thing. And Maz laughed about that. So I'm oddly he, emotional with that story. It's like yes. such an insight. <laughs> crazy eh? but he was listening to him he was listening to him and so he took off that in the um the music and we sat down and we started to talk and we talked about art and I found that if when he finished an answer if I didn't say anything all of a sudden he would start to talk a little bit about music like he would make the shift because that's how his brain worked, right? There was art, there was drawing, there was music. So he started to say things that were a little bit like he, he was moving into the music world. He, um, my other insights are all kind of emotional ones. 
he he had a shirt on that was open pretty much to his waist and he kept rubbing his chest and his skin was like stone it was like the most beautiful polished stone you've ever seen and then he coughed and phlegm went flying out of his mouth and landed on the carpet and he got up and got a Kleenex and picked it up and he goes there goes another little piece of me right there so I think he wasn't he was not very healthy at that point um at the end of that conversation he gave me a piece of art and he signed a poster for me and sent us off on our way and basil and i were just uh dumbstruck by the by the whole thing just that that little slice of him was something else yeah i think that's extraordinary that was a beautiful story your eyes were like welling up well it's just uh, because he's such an icon and uh i think you're just like the perfect person to have interviewed him just because there's so many people that uh know so much about his life and have studied him, written books about him, mm. countless books. He's written his own book, movies. Like he's such a mythological creature that he's clearly evolved in people's minds, you mm. know, that have studied him for so long that uh, I think if someone like that came to an interview, they would have all of this history clogging up their brain that it'd be impossible for them to be as present-minded as you absolutely were because you remember these very beautiful details about the day Mm. versus like isn't he amazing Mm. what about this record from this Mm. era like what about when you played with this guy or da 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 like it's all about the past rather than being very present and receiving him in the moment that can be a problem with particularly with music journalists or interviewers that they're trying to prove their own theory Mm. instead of seeing what's available right there. Now, I had restrictions because I needed to talk about art. So um, so that was my little restriction. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a great way to go into it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. Um, from one icon to another, uh, I... I watched uh, an interview of you and Whitney Houston. There's Whitney's been in the news a bunch recently too, because uh, I think her former best friend um, and uh, lover Robin Crawford uh, wrote a book about her and their mm-hmm. life together. It's beautiful, actually, it's an extraordinary book. And uh, there's Whitney's life is so intriguing because she's such again such a star, and she had s- such a she had this beautiful relationship with a best friend and lover, and then she couldn't really express that out in the world and how that kind of changed her and how it changed Robin, but how there's so much love for Whitney exhibited from Robin, like quite mm-hmm. a bit. There's no an anger or tension. It was just what they needed to do in order her, for her to do the work that she wanted to do. So Whitney, really what came across when I was reading about Whitney and Robin was how uh, she felt the weight of the Whitney felt the weight of the world on her shoulders mm. and she was constantly in situations she didn't really want to be in and uh, I say this because you freely talk about that in the interview you have with her she was clearly agitated and unhappy so if you could tell me a little bit about that 
Yeah, uh, I went to New York to do, there was, Whitney was going to do a day of international press for her latest album, and I can't even remember what it was. And I was the first person to do an interview with her on that day. And she was remarkably late, hours, uh, and stormed in there with Robin uh, and a makeup person and was getting her makeup done and scowling and glaring and no one was talking in the room. The tension was incredibly high. She really did not want to be there. And she sat down. We were sort of on a, like an L-shaped sort of, or two chairs, or maybe it was an L-shaped couch. And in a very defiant way, she put her feet up on the table in front of me, like in a very kind of aggressive way, did not want to talk. And then that's when we, we started talking. I, the feeling in that room was so awful. She was so angry um, and possibly high as well. She really felt like she was loopy in some way, but that there was still a ton of anger happening. So, yeah, and I'm trying to remember little bits about the interview, but I think where the heart of the interview for me came when it talked about the, the moments that she's on stage. And she said that's the only time, I think this is, right the only time that nobody can fuck with me and I've had Celine Dion say the same thing same thing to me that that is the only time of the day they feel like themselves is when they are on stage which is so troubling so troubling Mm. you can't touch me you can't maybe I'm mixing this up with Celine maybe you know the Whitney has used an interview better than I do at this point but it was just laden with all of her anger and resentment and yet she showed up (laughs) crazy yeah yeah i the fact that you say that's troubling is uh really important (laughs) Mm -hmm. because i think many people when they would hear that story would idealize it they think, wow. She's built to be yeah. a star. Yeah, built like to be I'm on stage. stage. No one can fuck with me. I am like, this is who I real. This is the real me is mm-hmm. this performer. But uh, to take away the human element of art and music, I think is really dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, and clearly messes with artists' mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, their own perception, their own ego. And the, the, the few times where I feel those things, like obviously on, on a micro scale, um, it's never worth it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've learned that kind of imbalance. Uh, you can kind of glorify it somehow, but uh, it kind of just leads to darkness, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, with Whitney that's kind of what happened with her yeah it's like that's her only safe space is on stage which is not not right Mm. yeah 
Yeah, that was big emotion. Mm. Yeah, for an empath too. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine being in that room, like what that would feel like with mm. all of those energies flying around. That would feel... Ugh. I'd bolt. <laughs> I'd leave. Yeah, it was awful. It was really, really awful. Yeah, but it sounds yeah. like from what I'm hearing, you did your best to be present and loving and just do what you had to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know where to go from there. That was so like <laughs> <laughs> heavy. Um, Cause I have other things, but I'm like, they don't feel appropriate well, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I could ask is, uh, because you've done so many, and this is a really basic question, but... Um, and do you, this is hard to say because you've done so many interviews, but what, is there a favorite one, at least today in your present day, what do you remember as being your favorite? Um, I guess the favorite ones are the ones where I was interviewing musicians that I truly loved and that my intuition about what they were like or how they thought about their music or felt about music that my intuitions proved true so you can listen to an artist for like a decade and you get to meet them and it's very scary because you think if they do not live up to my expectations I am going to be so bummed I might you know if they're an asshole they could ruin all the music for me. And you you think about how much time you invest and in heart and soul into the musicians that you love. So I think those would be the favorite ones where I felt that I was running a little bit on in intuition and because I knew their work so well that I could push stuff. So people like David Bowie and David Byrne and... Leonard Cohen, and who else? Joni Mitchell, a little bit. Um, people like that. Mm -hmm. That Those were the greatest interviews for me. Yeah. What did you find, uh, like your intuitions about David Bowie, what were your intuitions, and how were they proven correct? My intuitions is that, was that... He had a huge curiosity about art of all kind, all kinds, and that he was like a sponge and he would use anything and everything. And he would be just as interested in, in talking about theater as he would about this or that. And it turns out that that was true. And when allowed to, Bowie could take the conversation down any artistic road you wanted to go like uh, whether it was um, abstract painting or whether it was fashion design or furniture design or, or, or books or, or theater or like German theater, like anything. He was a voracious, voracious art lover. And so that, that made me feel good because when I listen to Bowie, I hear everything. Like I hear all these influences from everything. And of course his incredible visual style, it's all there. So not much of an intuition because I imagine most of us feel that way. But uh, what I loved was that he was absolutely willing to have the conversations go in these areas. Once again, he didn't really want it to be about him. He wanted it to be about art. He was a true artist. He was a true artist. Mm -hmm. um, you've obviously had a long and colorful and full career. So it's hard to cover all of it 
but uh when you were speaking earlier about being a young younger person in Scarborough and going to Sam the Record Man, it made me think when I was old enough to take the subway downtown, which I guess was 13 or something, mm. I would go to much music <laughs> like uh. every weekend, <laughs> uh. like with my friends and we would be the stand at the glass yeah. looking in sometimes we'd go inside especially uh, if there were if there was a band that i liked mm. like i loved like i mother earth and right. matthew good band and stuff and if they were going to be there i'd be like there and i'd go all the time and uh and that's another thing where i'd look out my bedroom window and see the little cn tower and i'd be like much music is there <laughs> music is there that's where i have to go um <laughs> And you were a Much Music VJ for a while, mm-hmm. quite a few years. And um, I don't know what my question is. Just that's amazing to me because when I was a kid, <laughs> Much Music was like the be all end all of, I don't know, like in my little Toronto life, like just the place where like I wanted to be. Well, it, <laughs> it was, what was so neat is that, it, you, that your love of music um, had a place Mm -hmm. like you could go like it was almost like this little church for all these young kids who had fallen in love with music or an artist (laughs) it was like going to church and when I was there um when you walked in the front door just to the right there was a big glass window looking into the studio from the lobby and my desk um, and Denise Donla's desk was right in front of that. So behind me was a, a window. And I'd be, you know, working away, blah, 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 talking on the phone. And I'd turn around and there'd be like 12 kids like looking at me like so intensely like this. Freaking, like really living in a fishbowl. But I got it. I got it. I understand it. And uh, every time I would sit down in front of an artist that I was about to interview... I knew that there were hundreds, if not thousands of kids who would have given anything to be in the chair that I was in. And it was my job to do the best job I could do for them. It's not just for the artist, it's also for the audience. A lot of kids that knew way more about this person than I did, and I had to up my game because I had to make, I had to satisfy their love of this artist too so it was an incredible position to be in but it it felt like a lot of responsibility Mm, I love that though and kids like me appreciate that so much I would tape episodes like VHS and I had this huge collection of tapes probably still in my parents basement of like all of these shows where I, I knew even like you know when they did the countdown like oh I know that there's this Our Lady Peace video that's number four. (laughs) So I have to like tape it because like the internet, like YouTube wasn't a thing. Exactly. And um, collecting your music. Yeah. So I think um, when I was kind of thinking about your career, a lot of it I was processing in terms of my own life. And I was a really, really big fan of The Signal. Mm. And I heard about The Signal because somebody, a friend of mine was like, hey, Kira, you should send your music to Lori Brown. She'd play it on the signal for sure. And I never did. But <laughs> but I was like, oh, what's this show? And then started listening to it. And it was just some of the most amazing radio, I think. Because mm-hmm. your love of music really came across. Your insights into what music was. Hmm. Was just 
awesome and super appreciated. And I guess I'm wondering how you made that leap from the television world Mm. then to radio and it felt like the signal was very much like and we're not even at pondercast yet but mm. it very much like your thing mm. where it, a lot of you was really in it um thank you for saying nice things about the signal it i guess uh it really wasn't just me it was me and andy shepherd the producer and I went to CBC and said, I want to do a late night music show. Um, but I, and they said, okay, well, write down a pitch, send it to us. And I said, I know how CBC works. I'm not going to do that because then they can say no. I said, why don't you pair me with a producer that you've got right now in house that you r really think needs to have their own show and create their own show and take the next step. Pair me with that person and we'll figure out what the show is. That's part of that thing about seeing opportunity mm -hmm. and not forcing opportunity. It's like, what could we come up with together? I always think that has more of a shot of happening and coming together when you're just working off the energy that's there already. So Andy Shepard and I got together and we talked about music and I played him music and he played me music and we realized we were totally musically in sync, which was, that's never happened to me before in my life, actually, <laughs> never. So that was, that was the big happy accident. Um, and then I guess I made choices about wanting to just be me on the radio because television it's it's kind of hard to be yourself on television everything is sort of working against you but I thought radio it's a much more intimate medium what am I going to do to make sure it's me I'm I'm not going to write anything um, which had all kinds of benefits it meant that management couldn't look at scripts they couldn't decide what was right or wrong they couldn't try to shape what it was what I was going to say uh, or the tone of it I never wrote it. I never wrote it down. Um, we didn't use any paper. That was another thing that we said at the beginning. There'd be no, this would be a paperless show. We both contributed the music we wanted for the signal into iTunes library. We did not use any of the systems of CBC. And I don't know if there's a kind of an energy thing that happened that was different, but. Um, iTunes is such an easy um, system to use to punch things in a library and then Andy would put them together and then he would wheel on a little cart this the hard drive down to the studio every day and we'd go in um, so that helped I think that helped me to be me because I said I'm going to be the same as the person listening to the radio I listen to music and my brain goes off in directions. I am inspired by one little word, one sound, and all of a sudden I'm on a, you know, your brain goes. And I said, I'm just going to do that because that's exactly what people at home are doing and I want to include them and be on their level. So I did that and then Andy and I decided that every the music that we played had to have heart. It had to have an emotional center. And if it didn't have an emotional center, it wasn't right for the signal. So that's the little world we built. 
um, and it attracted people, I think, with heart or people that needed more heart. Mm. Um, <laughs> and it's a precious time of night to be on the radio 10 to midnight oh my god it's the best in the world I was gonna say so it was a late night show and then when you listen to your new well current not, still newish mm-hmm. Pondercast third your podcast, <laughs> yeah <laughs> still uh. yeah. <laughs> um it has a feeling even though it's a podcast and you can listen to it whenever it has a late night feeling mm-hmm. it has a feeling of darkness and intimacy and space and mm-hmm. i'm wondering what it is about i feel like there's something about the night and you perhaps that's connected oh very <laughs> much so i think that's our untethered time you know that's the time where we dream uh where we are or we're not as distracted by daytime activities be it commuting cooking working everything else it is uh, frequently a time that we squander and we just let distraction take us, like we, we give ourselves to anything that wants us, you know, TV, film, Netflix, video games, anything. And, uh, but I think it's a, a very important time. It's where you check in with yourself. It's where you have your interior life and it's it can be an amazing place or it can be a terrifying place mm. and the radio is a and has been forever a companion for people um navigating those times and it can be just enough of a handrail you know to get you through those nights that aren't where, where you don't want to be alone for example it is a great it is a great companion mm. Yeah, I I think of the night as, uh, yeah, what did you say, untethered? Mm. Such a great word. Mm. (laughs) Untethered. What a breadcrumb that is, untethered, Mm. just because, uh, yeah, you go through your day with very specific goals. Usually people do, I think. Productivity. Yeah, right? It's like, I have a job. Mm. I have to meet this person. I have to do this person. When all those things are stripped away, who do you become, Mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes that like exactly as you said sometimes it's great sometimes it's Mm. really scary Mm. so when you're kind of navigating this untethered world it is nice to have a calm voice uh perhaps suggesting that yeah you're not like a lot of people feel this at night i i the the reason i talk about this is i i find uh not to make it about me Mm. but at night i i feel quite untethered it's a little Mm -hmm. scary Mm -hmm. i find i get quite scared at night yes because uh uh the there's a lot of unanswered questions that just pop into my head at a time when there's nothing I can do. You know, it's nighttime. Right. I uh, can't go out and fix this thing. You I can't, can't go out. There's no action to be taken. Exactly. Mm. So that's kind of the scary part. And really, this is a segue into this topic of mindfulness, which I know mm. uh, is an important topic for you and has been for me for a long time um, because I'm a practicing Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since I was like five, I guess, because my parent, my, my family is Buddhist, so and, and okay. I, I um, grew up with it, not really understanding it until I was older. Mm-hmm. Kids don't get these things; mm-hmm. they just do it because mm-hmm. their parents tell them to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, if you could talk a little bit about your experience with, because mindfulness is becoming very popular these days, a lot mm-hmm. of people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about your experience of it 
and practicing mindfulness in a really chaotic world because the music industry is a very chaotic, unbalanced place and uh, how mindfulness can be a tether into the present. Mm -hmm. So if you could speak on that a bit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I came to uh, mindfulness to meditation like a lot of people do when their life falls apart. Um, My marriage fell apart. I decided to leave CBC. This was before the signal. And everything fell apart. And uh, I needed something to ground me. So I started meditating. And I had a teacher here in Toronto who does not teach anymore. But that started me on my path. Um, I understood that the where I've studied lot of Buddhist um, teachings and I am a huge fan of some of them like the Heart Sutra is a really really important one for me I, I, w- I am not a Buddhist I pick and choose in anything that appeals to me I understand more about myself all the time I understand how I'm grounding myself in the earth energy and the natural world is so important for me Um, that becomes a big part of my practice and increasingly as I get older it gets more and more important Um, the chaos of the world is overwhelming Um, the the coming climate tragedy, the emergency that we're in right now creates a low level anxiety that you never walk away from, you can't get away from. Um, And how do we, how do we learn to live with that? How do we acknowledge it and acknowledge the, the terrible feelings that that brings? Um, Music has been, I think, people don't know they're meditating. But when they are listening to music, it is so much the same. Because music, like meditation, it happens over time. And it's the spending the amount of time with music or meditation that changes you. Mm-hmm. It's not two minutes. See what happens when you sit for 20 minutes. See what happens when you sit for 40 minutes. See what happens when you sit for an hour. See what happens when you put on, you know, a piece of music that lasts an hour long, that is perhaps instrumental and is perhaps low level enough that it's just holding you. Like meditation would, if you meditated, you would just be focusing on awareness and that would hold you in place. So I think that music, it's the actual doing of music that, that heals the business of being in music. Mm. You know, it's like, it's the yin and the yang of the same thing. Um, one is all thoughts, feelings, sensations, and the crap of the music industry, and the other is the perfect emptiness and the perfect space it creates. So it's like music is so helpful to people. That's so beautiful. And um, ties into something I want to bring up, which is uh, when I met you for the first time at the Banff Center, 
which I feel like Tara and I talk about the BAMF Center <laughs> in every single episode because <laughs> it's so important. And everyone needs to go. Everyone needs to go. So I was there doing an indie music residency and you were there doing a stillness. Was it just called stillness? Yeah, still, residency? yeah the art of stillness. The art of stillness. Mm-hmm. And this was led by Richard Reed Perry, who is a phenomenal composer and is a member of the Arcade Fire for any listeners who aren't familiar. I remember when I met him there, I was so excited because I like the Arcade Fire and everything, but I had seen a piece that he composed for Breath and Lungs Yes, in uh, Toronto. The Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony Orchestra was playing it. And this piece, um, for anyone who hasn't experienced it, the musicians all wear stethoscopes. They listen to their own heartbeats and they experience their breath. And through their heartbeat and their breath, they determine their own tempo. And it creates this, like everyone's playing together, but slightly loose and staggered because they're listening to their own internal rhythms. And it's just, and the music itself is just gorgeous. And I'd seen that and I was like, this is so beautiful. And then when I met him, (laughs) I was like, I love that piece. Oh my God. (laughs) I was so like, such a (laughs) lame-o. But uh, I... Met you, I remember, um, your residency did um, music and movement classes on some of the mornings. Mm -hmm. And I was walking to my studio and I ran into somebody who was in your residency. I think his name was Alex Ma. Yes, yeah, Yeah. Alex Ma, he plays uh, cello. Yes, it was him. And I was like, where are you going? He's like, oh, you know, we do these music and movement classes. Do you want to come? And I was like, am I allowed but of course the answer in Banff is always yes yes you can yeah, do it's anything. always yes <laughs> so I walk in and it's being led by Richard and a percussionist who is in your group like a drummer hmm. and it, she was a woman I forget her name but I don't know if I ever knew her name I forget it too in the show and I'll try and find it mm. <laughs> but somebody was leading this class where the goal was to move as slowly as you possibly could. Mm. So it was like, everybody lays down and see if, you know, put your left ear to the ground and try to take eight whole minutes to turn your head so that your right ear is on the ground. And how slowly can you do that? And we spent like 40 minutes or whatever, like doing these really slow exercises to music, to bass and drums. And then at the end, it broke out into the best dancing that I've ever experienced. People were going crazy, like rolling all over the the ground and then screaming. And and I got so into it. And I'm a little bit, at that time I was working through some self-consciousness issues and it was so freeing. It was one of my Mm. favorite experiences. But anyway, the point being (laughs) (laughs) that when I listened to PonderCast, it feels very unhurried. It feels like everything is this beautiful rumination and there is a lot of stillness, I think, like in the show itself. And I'm wondering, and we did that residency um, in 2016 and that was right before the signal was ending. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you were working on the new podcast there or if lessons from that stillness residency kind of seeped into the work on the podcast 
Definitely. Wor- work from that residency crept into everything that I did my whole life because things that happen in Banff are pretty magical. Yeah. <laughs> um, at that point, I I had almost a year to go before I was going to stop the signal. And I, th- I think I was, at that point, I was thinking, okay, next year I am going to stop doing the show and what will I do next? And I thought at that residency that I was going to be writing a book and that's what I was actually working on when I was there and then I had a session with the literary uh, teacher at the residence which is Pico Iyer who is an amazing writer who writes about stillness and um, and music and he's amazing and I talked to him about trying to find a voice in my writing that felt true, it felt like me, um, and I hadn't found it. My writing, I couldn't find it. And I had this conversation with him, and he said to me, will you do it when you talk? He said, the way you're talking right now has all of that. And then it led me down a process to try to write First of all, like I speak. And then I thought, why am I trying to put bake a cake out of this? Why am I not just sticking with what works? Because there's so much more available, I think, as information and tools in using your voice than there is typing. Mm-hmm. Typing is not my life. Mm-hmm. It's um, so... That, that made the process happen for me, saying, screw the book, podcast, and um, cut out any kind of thing in the middle. Because as soon as you have something in the middle, you attach all your self-criticism to it, right? And you look at it and you go, oh, fuck, no one's going to read this and no one's going to listen to this and blah, blah, blah. So um, for me, I find that making things more direct means that I give myself fewer opportunities to shut myself down in the process. And yeah, that, that works best for me. What is my most direct path to get to what it is I want to do? Yeah, because so much of art, I think we think of the process of communication as adding, like, oh, I'm going to do these things in order to get to you, yeah. rather than taking away <laughs> yeah it's like what if we eliminated these barriers yeah. i often think we start with a lot of barriers yeah and, make a know. don't do list yeah, yeah so these are things we don't need this is we don't need to do that we can get away without that, did that. i did that sorry to interrupt you i did that recently i wrote a list of things i okay I, I say this out loud to people if anyone's listening do this list make yes. a list of things you don't need in your life anymore it doesn't even need to be that dramatic it'd mm-hmm. be like I don't want to watch this TV show anymore. Yeah. Uh, it could be, I don't want to talk to this person anymore because they're not really serving me. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to try to be this type of person anymore. You yep. know, it's incredibly freeing to just let go of things that you're just trying to shove into your life. You know, like you're trying to put like a square peg into a round hole and you're just like getting so mad mm-hmm. and you can just throw that peg away. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're adding a lot of things in our lives and to the point where we're, we're drowning. So mm. why not clean the closet? Yeah. Is there a story that you're trying to tell through Pondercast? I don't think it's a story. 
I think it's a service. I think I want to be of service. I think I want to create a space for people where they can be themselves and not feel manipulated or sold anything and to offer people uh, some kind of complicated sanctuary where everything that shows up is allowed to show up. That's what I feel I'm supposed to do. That's so beautiful. It's <laughs> a very strong mission statement. It takes a long time to find it. You know, you can take a whole career, like that whole thing about finding purpose and finding meaning. It can take a long time to reveal itself. I never would have expected I would have ended up here. Mm-hmm. When, you know, I was on much music. <laughs> never, never. <laughs> what a journey it's been, though. Yeah, it's been great. Do you have any um, thoughts or advice you'd like to share to other podcasters, perhaps? Uh, <laughs> like in this room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all, um, everyone who's doing this is kind of making it up. <laughs> yeah. And struggling along and wondering what's going to happen and how you can get bogged down and okay how do I find an audience and what do I you know how can I make money doing this and um, I found it really easy a lot easier because at the beginning I was trying to hold on to everything and I was trying to hire Joshua Van Tassel to write music and hire Ty Johnson my our other partner to do all the web end things and I a I didn't have the money and b I did not want to be I have to put out all that energy myself to manage all this and I said screw it we're all going to be equal partners and we're just because I need you want more energy in it. So it's great that you two of you are doing this because it makes it so much simpler just to let go of the, let go of ownership, let go of credit, um, follow your heart, do things you're passionate about and you will find the people. And when it doesn't serve you anymore, you don't have to do it anymore. You know, it's like, and then it turns into something else because, you know, you're talking to all these people and it's uh, it's everything. It's it's professional development. It's um, building a network. It's giving you sanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's everything. So nobody knows what's going to happen with podcasts. All I know is that there are more and more and more of them all the time. Mm-hmm. There are more people making podcasts than listening to podcasts. I think sometimes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But where I think we're also starving for real conversation because mainstream media doesn't do it anymore. So you can't find a long form interview hardly anywhere. So I think that some people still, they want that kind of talk. They want to hear that kind of talk. Yeah. That's the best part for me. I think it doesn't matter like what happens. It's having the opportunity to sit in a room with somebody Mm -hmm. and just look inside of their head for a minute Mm -hmm. and see what are they thinking about? Mm -hmm. What are they thinking when they make what they make? And I think the 
the best thing that podcasts are doing is just sharing ideas and sharing perspectives and mm-hmm. um, sharing a lot of heart and we're all learning about each other and I think that's the most rewarding part yeah. of all. Yeah, it's nice to have the time to figure out where the heart even lies mm-hmm. because with entertainment, uh, entertainment, right? Mm. Uh, it's kind of a different industry because there's like a very concrete goal, I feel. Not that I'm an expert on entertainment, but like mm. just from what I've seen, entertainment, the goal is to make people happy <laughs> and, and in, again, in a more, in a darker way, it's like, oh, to make money. Uh, and uh, then the, there's people that want to take the time to figure out what's, what makes the person tick. And that just takes time and time is money. So that's one of those things where like, well, we need like a 30 second soundbite or we need like yeah. a top 10 list or we need something that mm-hmm. is really easy to digest. Um, but I agree that people are looking for long form interview. I, I just now like the amount of people that listen to podcasts on the subway and like on the, like on their commute versus, you know, other forms, whether it's music or not. Uh, I just hear like, have you checked out this podcast pocket? Because mm-hmm. people are hung- hungering for something yeah. um, that is perceived to be real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I want to know this thing. I yeah. want to really know it. Yeah. You know? I mean, we've been, we've been sent, so many of our regular normal emotions have been censored out of mainstream media. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the awful ones, you know, grief and sadness and panic and anxiety and everything else. Nobody wants to push that out there. So I know that I want to see things and experience art that is about everything, Mm -hmm. not just about the top one, you know, third or one quarter of, of your feelings at the bright end of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've kept you here for a while. (laughs) that's okay (laughs) um before we close out um i guess so is that the book that you were writing that's kind of been kiboshed or what's the story well it's it's sitting away and (laughs) sometimes it's sitting there and sometimes i um go in and i um pull bits of it out and mm-hmm. I use them in Pondercast but Pondercast does have a book coming out in a in a Ooh. week oh, oh wow yeah but it's in true inclusive fashion it is a um, it's called night and it is a book of creative journaling seven nights of creative journaling so it is for you to experience and write in and it comes with the audio portion so I guide you through these seven nights of journaling Mm. um we're really I I hope you you show up on the page and I'm there and Joshua Van Tassel has written all this music Mm. so you spend 20 to 30 minutes per night um for a week and these are it's for people who maybe thought about journaling they want to kickstart some creative stuff or they want to reshape how their nights go if they don't like the way their nights are happening right mm. now so yeah that's coming out next week so see what happens kind of strangeness circles back and there is a book yay also the music on the show is amazing yeah joshua van tassel yeah. he is incredible and <laughs> He, I, I write and he's inspired by that to create or it happens the other way around. The mm. episode this week is called Breathing Lessons and it's because he was in the studio 
and he was composing and just around breath and that's what he did so I said okay now I will be inspired by what you've created and so then I created the 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 story for breathing lessons yeah. mm. great everybody check out Pondercast available everywhere yeah. everywhere <laughs> and thank you so much for talking to us thank yeah. you thank you both it was a, it was a great chat I Aww. really appreciate it that means a lot <laughs> yeah it does <laughs> it's very good <laughs> It's true. It does. Yeah, it's very yeah, really good. You Thank you so much for a living. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I even do it when I don't oh get paid. Too. You talk <laughs> off mic. What? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, is it the end? <laughs> is it the end of Gorilla Fair? No. There will be another cycle, cycle three, coming soon. But we're not going to say when yet. Thank you for listening to our interview with the amazing Lori Brown. Uh, so amazing. Yeah. Gosh. You should all listen to her podcast, PonderCast. Uh, you can follow what's happening there at www.pondercast.ca. And as Lori mentioned in the interview, there is a PonderCast book that has just come out. Um, and will be linked to on the website very shortly mm -hmm. so visit pondercast.ca to grab that link and check out the book and it sounds like an incredibly rewarding um collaborative <laughs> sort of book between yourself and Lori brown mm -hmm. which is amazing and you can follow Lori's ponderings on instagram at Lori brown picks so be sure to give us a rating Follow us on Instagram at Gorilla's Fair. Follow us on Twitter at Gorilla's Fair. <laughs> yep. And uh, before we close out, we would like to say thank you to everybody who's been on the show this cycle. Yeah. So, so lovely. Thank you to Leia Faye, Adnan Khan, Anthems of the Void, Ron Lee Tepper, Carmen L., Daniel Knibby, Mingja, Liz Leia, our witchcraft expert, Havaya Mighty, Isque, Robin Dan, Felicity Williams, and Lori Brown. What a lineup, Kira May. I know. We learned so much from all of them and are, couldn't make this show without our guests. Uh, and also, we couldn't make the show, well, we could make it, but it wouldn't be as rewarding if you were not listening mm -hmm. to it. So thank you so much for listening to our show. Like Tara said, um, subscribe, like us, share us. Tell your friends, tell your moms and dads mm -hmm. if you think they'd like it. <laughs> tell your dogs and cats. Tell your dogs and cats. And uh, look out for our upcoming YouTube channel, which we want to launch for season three, cycle three, menstrual cycle three. <laughs> and uh, our Patreon page, which will be up shortly. So keep an eye out for that. And we're just so thrilled to be making this show. It gives us a lot of life and happiness and um we're excited to make more episodes to share with you very soon in 2020 yes you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take no fear <laughs> <laughs>